This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am proud to say that this episode is brought to you by a company whose inflatable rafts I've been using for nearly a decade. Watermaster boats have taken me on countless adventures when I've relied on portability and safety to get me from point A to point B. The Watermaster folds into an extremely compact package, and its frameless design allows for a complete assembly and disassembly in under 10 minutes. Whether it be for a simple day of fishing on a Skeena River tributary or a week-long fly-in trip in the remote mountains of BC, the Watermaster has always been the one tool necessary to make it all happen. I can't thank them enough for their support and quality service over the years. You can find them in the back of every serious steelheader's truck or at www.bigskyinflatables.com. Gary Borger is a staple of the fly fishing community. Author, instructor, presenter, and all-around wealth of knowledge, he's been in the industry since 1971. I had met Gary briefly in years prior, but never had the opportunity to really sit down and speak with him. In this episode, Gary and I make time for discussion, and I was able to finally pair his personality to the man behind the words. I was born and raised in western Pennsylvania, near Franklin, Oil City, Pennsylvania, May 29th, 1944. Wow, okay, excellent. And your parents, were they fishermen? Nobody in my family fished, which is very interesting. But I think it was, there's a couple of reasons. One, the day before I was born, my mother and father went fishing for suckers, 
which was something they did occasionally on, in the springtime. They'd go, when the water came high, then they'd put on a big gob of worms and lay it out there and catch suckers. You know? Did they eat them? And, oh yeah. We <laughs> lived, we lived actually very close to a really nice trout stream. Remember how river runs through it starts? Mm-hmm. You know, we grew up through new, t- I grew up through th- near three trout streams too, same kind of thing. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of parallels there. When Jason and I were, were talking about the book, the book and the script and all that kind of stuff when he was working on the movie. A lot of parallels between the way he grew up and the way those kids grew up. Too, yeah. And the way I grew up. And I'm going to come back so to that because some of my listeners might not necessarily understand the reference to A River Runs Through It, so we are going to come back okay, to that. Okay, we'll do that. All right. Anyway, uh, I can remember the earliest fishing I can remember was when I was a three and a half or four. My brother and I fished in the mud puddles in front of the house. We didn't catch anything, but we had a good time fishing. <laughs> you can try. And by the time we were six, we were roaming all over the countryside. We lived in a very rural area in, in western Pennsylvania. The big stream was Sugar Creek, which was a good-sized stream, and then there were two others, Foster Run and, and Beatty Run. Both of those were trout streams, and they flowed into Sugar Creek. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we, I could, was six, we were roaming all over the place. We had ponies. We traveled everywhere. We fished whenever we wanted. We just were basically wild in the summertime. And so that was very good because we had plenty of opportunity to go lots of places and try lots of things and, and very on trout captured my imagination. I just love trout. When I was about 10, I started reading about fly fishing in my father's uh, outdoor books, outdoor magazines, I mean. And people like uh, Al McLean, Joe Brooks, Ted Trueblood, young, young, young Ernie Schwebert, and others were writing articles about fly fishing. But in those days, it wasn't how to fly fish. It was just more the mystique of it. Mm. And so I'd read these articles and sort of feel this longing to go and do what they were doing and swing a wet fly or, you know, they'd talk about, oh, yeah, and we swung the, you know, the royal coachman or the, the coachman or the lead wing coachman and blah, blah, blah. And so I started, I started, well, this is something I wanted to do. So I asked my parents for a fly tying kit for my 11th birth, 11th Christmas. And I got one for my 11th Christmas. Now, interestingly enough, Nancy, my wife, got her first fly tying kit when she was 11. No way. Yeah, funny, interesting. <laughs> anyway, so I started tying flies and then started fly fishing. My father had a fly rod that he used for minnow fishing occasionally. But he was a roofing contractor, so he didn't get to fish very much in the summertime because that's when you spend all your time roofing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they roofed in the winter a little bit, but not much. I mean, it's hard to roof in snow and ice. So he would spend all of his summer, and he did more hunting. He especially liked to do deer hunting because it came after basically the roofing season. It was in November into early December. So he really enjoyed that, and he just didn't get to fish very much. But because we were just you know, wild. I mean, when we were kids, we're, they just, my mother would say, go outside, and we'd go outside <laughs> and go fishing or hunting or ride horses or whatever. So it was really fun. And so I decided I wanted to learn how to do it, and I just, and I did, and I had nobody to teach me. Uh, so from that came a longer experience of all kinds of things going on, but I started tying flies very early, taught myself to tie flies, and I was a pretty good fly tire, even when I was young. And uh, I caught my first fish, I can remember the first trout I caught as if it was yesterday. Caught it on a lead wing coachman, swinging it. I saw a fish rise on the other side. It was a stalked rainbow, you know, in Sugar Creek. Yeah. In a place where there was a island in the stream, so it was maybe only 25 to 30 feet across. Sort of lopped one out there, because my casting was not very good. <laughs> and I can remember the fly swinging and the fish taking it and all that kind of stuff. Oh. Yeah, it's just like it was yesterday. It happened. Now, were you, and I so, mean, were you in school? Were you going to school during the day and then fishing in the evening? Oh, evenings, yeah. Or? Well, we'd fish on weekends and we'd fish in the evening and in the morning, get up sometimes before school and fish, sure. Absolutely. Yep. So from that, then, uh, 
the th- I think the second fly-only stream in Pennsylvania, I think it was, was uh, was right near was Little Sandy Creek, which was about maybe 12 miles from where I lived. So before we started driving, my dad would take myself and maybe a friend or two that fly fished, and we would go out there and we would just fish. And then after we sort of started driving, then we were out there all the time because it was fly-only. Mm-hmm. They allowed people to kill... No, I don't think it, they could, I think it was catch and release only even in those days, and so it was great fun because nobody else there was fishing except with flies, and my friends and I would watch all the other guys that we thought knew what they were doing right. to try to and emulate what we thought. They were. Some of it was not very good, I'll tell you, because <laughs> some of those guys did not know what they were doing. Right. Then later, when I got into college, my first year at Penn State, I attended a campus called Mount Alto, which was where all the forestry students went. And I was in forestry in those early years. And there was a, the dean of the college was a friend of George Harvey. In fact, he and George were the first two guys probably to fish trico hatches in Pennsylvania. Because in those days, the fishing season ended, trout season ended July 1. And so after it opened, tricos didn't come on until after July, see? Ah. So as soon as it opened, they knew about them, of course, because Mm -hmm. they'd been to the river many times. As soon as they came on, they had their flies all tied and ready to go uh, Bill Pfeiffer was was the dean's name, and he had a fly time course in the winter, as did George. But George was at the main campus, and I was off at an, at an ancillary campus. And so I took Bill's course, not because I wanted to tie flies, but just because I wanted to be with other guys that tie flies, and because if there's anything new, I could learn fine. Mm-hmm. The thing I learned from that course was how to make bobbins to hold your thread. That's when that whole time started. Was See, now that would have been 1980, 1962. That's when that whole thing started. Before then, you didn't use a bobbin. You just tied with your fingers. And you just pulled off a piece of thread and wrapped it on, and then you had to half-hitch it after every turn. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea. Oh, yeah, a lot of those early steelhead flies were all tied that same way. That's so sure. interesting. We didn't start using bobbins until right around 1960, something like that. And we made them ourselves out of wood, and we used the, the uh, core out of a pencil. Yeah. I mean, not a pencil, a pen. The little... Uh, metal tube that's in there. Right. You clean all the ink out very carefully and blow it all out, clean it all out with with uh, alcohol and get them all clean and then polish up the end and make your little tube and put it in this little wooden frame. And Oh, we all did. We did all that stuff. That was the time when I started, when I really decided and really saw the advantage of some of these tools. Mm. Because before that, all I had was a pair of scissors that I used or a razor blade, and that was it. And we were using silk thread in those days, not nylon. Nylon came along a little bit later. Were you using a vice? And you had a vice, yep. Okay. Yep, we all had vices. And you had a vice, you had uh, bodkins and combs and all the usual kind of stuff, scissors and so on. But some of the tools that really made fly tying better, so much better, were things like bobbins, uh, dubbing brushes, mm-hmm. uh, spinning tools. Those are the tools probably that came along. But the two major things that happened in fly tying, I think, were the bobbin and the thread. Because before, when silk was used, silk said silk did not stretch. It was just there, period. And you had to knot off every single thing you did, otherwise it just came unraveled. Right. So you're half-hitching all the time. Well, when nylon came along, nylon stretches. Mm-hmm. And it was untwisted. And so you could stretch it and really put, like tying with a rubber band. You can imagine rubbing, wrapping a rubber band around your finger, yeah. how tight it gets. Well, the same thing happens when you use, when you use uh, either polyesters or nylon threads really, really goes on. And you so with a bobbin, the weight of the bobbin hanging there and this very tight wraps, you didn't have to worry about knotting anything off. So it increased your tying speed dramatically. And you got better flies because the, everything was on there much tighter than it ever would have been with silk. Yeah. You got much better heads because you can use a finer material. And all sorts of wonderful things happened on that start. 
And then, of course, there's been also this tremendous outgrowth of materials. That happened starting around 1972 or 73. What would have been an, an outgrowth of... of what, what's well, the example? I'll tell you where it all started. It all really started with... Uh, uh, Doug Swisher and Carl Richards' book, Selective Trout. That's where it started. I just got that book. Yeah, that's where it started. If you look in there in the back, yep. you'll see where they talk about polypropylene. Right, okay, yeah. Polypropylene was a, a, is a material that's hydrophobic. It will not suck up water. It repels water. It doesn't mean if you tie a fly out of it that water's going to run away from it. No. Yeah. <laughs> it just meant it didn't absorb it. Like natural furs and hairs will all absorb water. Mm. This stuff didn't. And it was one of those kind of things. And not only that, but they... They dressed a fly that nobody had ever seen before, huh. and that is the no-hackle pattern. Nobody had ever seen this before. I mean, bef- yes, way early in fly fishing, say around 1400, they were dressing flies without hackle on them, the way we think of hackle. Mm-hmm. But I have some books that were written in Spain in the 1500s, and they have standard, straight-up old dry fly hackle used with, you know, cock hackle and illusion blue done. They talk about all this kind of stuff. Standard way we would tie dry flies today. So very early on, they were they were dressing flies like that. Well, when Swisher and Richards came out with a no-hackle pattern, Joe Brooks wrote about it in the magazine. Told, yeah, they made a couple slips here and there and snips and gave me a fly and a fish, and then I realized I didn't have a hackle on and I was catching fish, blah, 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 etc. That sort of sparked tremendous interest in the whole process of fly tying and sort of broke the traditional thing. Every fly has to have a hackle on it, you know, if it's a dry fly, and a tail, and they have to be this long, and blah, 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 etc., etc. And it began the whole whole range of experimentation not only into materials but also into fly patterns and designs. Oh. In 1991 I did a book called Designing Trout Flies mm-hmm. which sort of introduced the concept of designing rather than simply tying patterns that were already in existence. The idea behind it was a pattern is a particular recipe that you follow to achieve a certain goal in the fly did you end up with. So you always tie a green butted skunk G with a green butt. Right. You know, and so on and so on. The idea there was, okay, we have materials, we have threads, we have hooks, we have all this kind of stuff. How can we use these materials and things to develop flies that are, you know, stronger, faster, able to leap over tall buildings in a single bound, <laughs> better than other flies, and be able to do it quickly and simply and easily. Yeah. So we've seen that and we've seen a tremendous upsurge in this use of materials within the last well, since about, like I say, about 1972, but probably maybe even more since about 80, because more and more new materials are coming about, because fabrics are getting better. And most of the stuff that comes in fly fishing, that's new materials, has come about from fabric production. Mm-hmm. Synthetics, yeah. Yeah, because we, we can't in fly fishing afford to produce materials just for fly fishing. Right. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no. Industry is way too small for that. So we get a lot of our materials coming in from industry. So all of a sudden you have all these new materials coming. And people are beginning to experiment. And all of a sudden, fly fishing is now branching out from just trout fishing into all kinds of other areas. And we have trout and steelhead and salmon. All of a sudden, now we've got all the tropical warm water species. Now suddenly, yeah. we've got all the flat species. Now we've got all the, even the blue water species. And so all this stuff is just exploding like crazy. Yeah, it really is. And that's and that's why it's happened like that. It's because not only have we expanded in the tying area, but then the ability to use those when we go and fish for all these other species, too. So when you were in college, was that pretty normal to have a fly fishing workshop be part of a curriculum? No, actually, Penn State was one of the few places probably in the whole world that did it. Do they still have and it? Here's how that all developed. George Harvey was the director of athletics, and he was a fly fisher, and he wanted to offer fly tying courses. Right. And so he did. And he fished with a lot of important people, including Ike Eisenhower and others, because Milton Eisenhower, who was Ike's brother, was the president at Penn State. 
Uh-huh, okay. So that whole thing got started that way. There's a stream there called Spruce Creek, which is a very famous stream in Pennsylvania, right near State College. It has an area on it called Spruce Creek Rod and Gun Club, which is a private section of the river that you have to belong to the club to fish it and all that kind of stuff. And so Ike used to come there and fish all the time because it was private. And the Secret Service could lay it out. Nobody could get in, et cetera, et cetera. And so he would fish with George Harvey because George knew Milton, of course, who was the president, and Milton, of course, was Ike's brother. So all that kind of stuff started. Well, George taught fly tying classes there for years and years and years. I mean, I don't know how many years. And then he brought Joe Humphreys in. So, you know, and Joe, and Joe was not that much younger than George, maybe 10 years younger. Joe's 87 now. Yeah. And uh, so so he brought him in, and then Joe began doing some stuff in fly casting and fly, you know, teaching fly tying and that kind of stuff. And so that whole thing's built yeah. out of that. Is, is that program still in existence? Oh, yeah. It is. It's still part of the Penn State curriculum. So, Absolutely. So what were you studying in, in, or in university? Well, my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's degree, was in forest technology. And then I saw when I was... I mean, I like the idea of trees, and I like the idea of forestry, and I like the idea of being outside and all that kind of stuff, but... My particular bent was more toward the hardcore science rather than the how many bales of hay does it take to you know for a mule to survive over the winter, which is thirty one bales of hay by the way in Pennsylvania anyway and uh, i I preferred more of the hardcore science, more of the chemistry, more of the physics, more of the other kind of stuff mm-hmm. and math and so on so when I moved into my master's degree, then I started focusing more over in that area more toward botany rather than strictly forestry. My master's degree was in silviculture, which is the growing of trees, but my particular project was on a fungal disease that was affecting sugar maple trees uh, in the eastern United States. Wow. And Penn State was one of the primary researchers in that. So the guys down in Plant Path were working on the fungus, and we were up in forest. We were working on things like being able to predict the kind of sites where this would happen. Mm-hmm. So that's what my master's degree was on, being able to predict site locations where this particular disease would be more critical on the tree than other places, which we were able to do. So we were able to figure that out. Then when I went on to my work on my Ph.D. at, Penn, at uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, I wanted to focus more over on the botanical side of it, not quite so much on the tree growing and other kinds of stuff. But by the time I was done with my master's, I had three semesters of calculus. I had molecular biophysics. I had uh, three, two, three semesters of plant physiology I had uh, chemistry up through, up through what did I have? Not, maybe quantitative analysis and chemistry. So I had lots of stuff uh, besides just you know forestry courses. Mine was mostly focused over on the hardcore stuff. Well, then when I went to Madison, again it was a more on the hardcore stuff. But then I worked on the development of bark and trees. Okay. And the reason I did that was when I was working on this fungal disease uh, for sugar maple bark. I went and I looked to try to find information on how bark is produced in trees, and there's hardly anything available. I mean, Darwin did stuff on that, of all people, and a couple other articles, and then there was hardly anything. Oh. So it was a great Ph.D. project because everything I did was brand new, so I think I got 13 papers or something out of my Ph.D. project. Did they, did they use any of your data? Oh, sure. I mean, I published future? all this stuff. Oh, sure. Wow. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know any of this about you. Well, <laughs> this is so you know, that's the non-fishing side of me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so when did then, you... I'm sorry, proceed. Also, I got my PhD in 71 right. and started teaching at the University of Wisconsin, but not at the main campus. I taught at a center in Wausau where we lived. Okay. It was a two-year campus, but it was a feeder campus. Wisconsin was very unique, and it had 13 
community colleges. They're not really community colleges because you didn't get a degree there. What you did was you went and you got your first two years, and then you could transfer out to some other college. Most of our kids went to Madison. Okay, so you got your diploma. Yeah. And then you... Yep, so I got my degree. Yeah, you got. You didn't even get a diploma No. from the two-year campus. No, they, they have that now. You can get an associate degree. But when I was teaching there, it wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. You went two years, and that was your first two years at some other campus. You just went right in. Mm-hmm. The reason they did that was they had very high attrition rates at places like Madison. You know, you get 20,000 kids in, and 5,000 of them would drop out at the end of the first year because it was too difficult for them. Yeah. So they'd come to our campuses, which were even more difficult, but they didn't know that. Oh, okay. Our, the students from our campus, for example, in our 13-year, our 13-group campus, our campus was probably the flagship campus. And that was very good. I mean, I enjoyed it. I loved the kids. I don't like the, all the administrative BS that goes on in the universities, but that's mm-hmm. just the way it is. So I was there 28 years, had about 7,500 kids in my classes. Were you involved in the fly fishing industry sure. while you were still teaching? Absolutely. So I started that? I started teaching at the university in 71 in the spring of I can't I think it was the spring of maybe 72 or 73 maybe it was I can't remember exactly um, must have been 73 spring of 73 in Wausau was Marathon Waiters which at that time were considered the world's premier waiters the company was right there in Wausau I knew the people I'd gone down there and talked to them I knew the guy that ran the place and all that kind of stuff and he said to me hey we're going to do a, fly, a fishing clinic in the spring. We do it every spring. The newspaper, one of the TV stations, one of the radio stations, they all sponsored this thing, and, and it's on fishing. Would you like to do fly fishing? And I said, you yeah, well, sure, okay, I'll do something. Well, I, I mean, I got some slides together, and, and I said, well, I want to do this movie that I know that's uh, Way of a Trout. It was actually shot in Wisconsin on Knapp Creek, and it was a conservation. It was one of the very first conservation catch-and-release movies ever made. Wow. And so I said, I know that movie, and I, but I'd like to get a copy of that. So this guy's name was Ted. Ted, do you know anybody that has it? He said, Yeah, I think uh, I think Jack's got a copy. He's the Fenwick rep. Well, I had I knew about Fenwick because I'd been when I had a Fenwick rod. I said, Oh, so that'd be cool. So I called Jack up, and Jack says, Yeah, I got a copy of that. What do you want that for? And I said, Well, Ted said you had it, and I was going to. Oh yeah, sure, I'll bring that up. So he comes up and he sits through my program. And at the end, you know, I showed the movie at the end and, you know, okay, catch a release and all this kind of blah, blah, blah kind of stuff. And, and so I'm, I'm rewinding the movie and Jack comes up and he says, have you ever thought anything about doing anything professionally with this? Well, I thought he meant the movie because I'm rewinding the movie. Yeah. I said, well, it's not my movie. No, no, no. I mean about this talk that you gave. <laughs> I said, I don't know. It's the first time I've ever done it. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. Well, that was all I heard. Two weeks later, I get a call. Hi, this is Frank Gray at Fenwick. We're going to do National Fenwick Fly Fishing Schools. Could you be the Midwest director? Oh, my <laughs> so goodness. I said, oh, I have to think. Okay. <laughs> About that fast. So here I am, 28 years old, and I'm the director of the Midwest, Midwest Fenwick Fly Fishing Schools. Oh, my goodness. So, how, how are you fitting all this in with your real job? Well, here's the cool part about that. When they hired me, I said I only want a nine-month contract. I don't want to work all year. Yeah, but you get paid in the summer if you teach classes in the summer. I said, yeah, and if I work in the summer, I can't fish. I can't do anything in the real world. I'm sitting in an ivory tower. I don't know anything except my academic stuff. Yeah. i got to know more information than that. So I had a nine-month contract. So in, in June, July, and, and August, basically, I didn't work. So the Fenwick School started in 1973, I think they started. And they were the first ever national fly fishing schools. Uh-huh. And Mel Krieger did the West Coast. Frank Gray did the Rocky Mountains. I did Midwest. Jim Guilford did the East. And we'd get together every year, four of us, and, and with Jim Green, who was the who was the rod designer at Fenwick, but also Jim has a very long tournament history. 
Right. He's the first guy to cast over 200 feet. You know, he's the guy that designed sh- uh, shooting headlines. He's the guy that came up with the tip-over-butt fin. Do you ever hear the story about how he came up with that? No. The tip-over-butt feral? He's brought up all the time. He's brought up in this podcast all the time. Oh, yeah. Please do tell Well, me. Jim was a very, very, very knowledgeable guy, but also per- wonderful caster. I'm like, I guess you should have seen him cast. Jim designed a new rod. And back in those days, all rods had metal ferrules on them. As did Fenwick. One of the reasons that Fenwick, even in those early days, was doing so well was because they produced a blank called the Ferrolite blank. And actually, when it was rolled, they actually put it under pressure, more pressure than anybody else. So the blank was actually thinner-walled but stronger when they made them. And and it was a very famous rod company. It was actually, it's up in Bainbridge Island on Washington. It's the Grizzly Rod Blank Company. They're the people, guess who they are now? Sage. Yeah. (laughs) When Fenwick got out of business, they became Sage. Yeah. I should tell you that story, too. Anyway... Jim took the rod down to the to the wrapping room, and he said, Can you gals wrap this for me and put some ferrules on it? I need to test it out. It's a new blank. They said, Oh, Mr. Green, I'm sorry. We just we don't have time to do that right now. We'll get, we'll get this big order in. Next week, we'll have it for you. He said, I don't want to wait till next week. So he just said, Can you tape some guides on? So they tape some guides on. He takes the tip and just shoves it over the butt. without a, No. Walks out and goes, Hey, this works. <laughs> and so they went like, You know, this is a cool idea. So they patented it. That's where that ferrule came from. Oh, my goodness. Just I like had that. no idea. Yeah, just like that. So we were in, involved in all that kind of stuff. Now, of course, we didn't get involved in the Fenwick Fly Fishing Schools when that ferrule was designed. That was before us and before the schools. But we were involved with Jim and all these other guys. And so all of us would get together and talk about fly fishing. Not only just fly fishing, but how do you teach it? Yeah. Because there were no videos. There were very few books on actually how to cast. And there were no schools that were doing it except Fenwick. So no FFF? Well, the FFF was around, but it wasn't doing fly casting schools. What did they do? Well, they just did fly tying and everybody would get together and have their conclave kind of thing. Oh, no, yeah. but no casting, just tying. Oh, they did casting and that kind of stuff, but they didn't have schools that taught casting. Wow, okay. And I'll tell you where that came from, too. <laughs> it's fascinating. Okay. Do tell. All right. So anyway, so we would get together there every year and talk about casting. And out of that came all kinds of ideas about how to teach people how to do this thing, of which we're still working with, trying to figure out ideas how to teach people to cast better, more easily, and so on. But that's where that all originated, was in that. Oh, okay. And then out of that came DVDs and videos, and pretty soon shops were doing it, and everybody else was doing it. Well, Fenwick, the owner of Fenwick, was the, fam- the Clock family. And Phil Clock was the guy who really managed the company. And Phil got cancer and passed away. And so they decided to sell the company. So they sold it to a company from Pennsylvania, from Lidditz, Pennsylvania, the Woodstream Corporation, which basically made mousetraps and other kinds of things, and they didn't really understand it. We went, and Mel and I and a couple others went and talked to them very specifically, and we said, you know, uh, this company is known for fly rod manufacturing, although they produce all kinds of other rods. You've got to keep the quality of the fly rods there because that will automatically, that, that quality will rub off on the quality of everybody else. Everybody else will say, this is a premier rod manufacturing company. They make, look at these great fly rods, therefore all their rods must automatically be great. And they said, well, we decided we're going to sell our, the fly rods in Kmart. We said, if you do that, I guarantee you with one year this company will be gone. Within one year it was gone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely gone. Well, now, in the back corner, sitting over here, is Les Icorn who was the rep for Fenwick on the West Coast. So less. And Jim Green wasn't supposed to because he had a three-year contract that said he, you know, he had to not do anything for three years. He's, he sort of substituted on the side and didn't let him know. Right. Uh, Don Green, who was the, the manufacturer of Grizzly Blanks, 
who was the guy that founded Grizzly, who was the guy that made all the Fenwick blanks. Right. Those guys got together, along with Mark Bale, and they said, let's just start a new company. Oh, we'll God. call it Sage. Oh. Now, here's how that went. You see, you've got all these Fenwick reps across the United States and around the world, already no Fenwick company. Right. So you just go and you make another flyer that's equal, and you have all the reps in place, and you said, we're not Fenwick anymore, we're Sage. Bingo. Overnight success. The guy that did the, the, that does the designing for them is Jerry Seam. There's one place in, in River Runs Through It where you actually see Jerry casting. Otherwise, it's Jason. And that place is when he comes back and he sees him casting and he said, I realized my brother had broken away from my father's casting and, and gone on to us. And you see this guy casting this long line up the river and you see him from the back. Yeah. That's Jerry. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Can, can we explain? And, I know I've got people going, what is all this River Runs Through reference? <laughs> Would you mind yeah. explaining? Well, there was a guy by the name of Norman McLean who grew up in Montana, who was a college professor at the University of Chicago. And Norman was a taught English. And he was a writer, and he wrote some stuff occasionally. And then he finally decided to write his family's story. It wasn't an exact history of his family, but it was, in some places, it's a metaphor of growing up in Montana and the whole concept of of families that don't function correctly on some levels but function perfectly on other levels. I mean, we all grew up in dysfunctional families. But the perfect part of his family was when they were all together fishing. So the title is A River Runs Through It. So the river ran through their family as a as the perfect part of their lives. And so when you read the book, I mean, he's a tremendous writer, wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could you... I mean, he talks about, at the end of it, he talks about the, the rocks are under the water, under the rocks are the words, some of the words are theirs. I mean, it's just amazing the way he wrote this thing. So they wanted to make a movie out of that. Well, you have to understand that Norman was not a... Um, what you would call a real pleasant person okay. when it came to dealing with Hollywood. He didn't like Hollywood, period. He hated Hollywood. And he didn't want anybody in Hollywood making a f- story about his family because, as he said, they're going to turn into some big sex thing with all <laughs> kinds of stuff going on, and that wasn't my family, and you're not doing it to my family, period. Get out of here. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, like, I like him. So years before, several years before the movie was actually made, I was in Hollywood visiting with a friend of mine who's a producer. And he said, have you ever seen this? And he slops it down, and here it is, the script for River Runs Through It. And I read through it, and I said, oh, yeah, I know this book. Norman Plain wrote that, and he's just down the road in Chicago from where we live, and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he said, well, I'm, I'm working on that. Maybe I can get that. Well, he was working against Redford with it. Now, Redford did this, and this is the reason the movie got made. Redford called Norman up and said, hi, this is Bob Redford. Yeah, okay, what I'm going to... No, you're not making my book into a movie. Blah, 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 blah. Redford said, okay, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fly back to Chicago, and I want to meet with you three times. And on the third time, you say yes or no. And I'll accept whatever it is, and I'm gone. So Norman said, well, okay. You know, Probably his wife said, oh my gosh, it's Robert Redford. you know, you got to get him back here. So anyway, so Redford goes back, and he talks to him, and he convinces Norman that he will make the kind of movie that Norman once made. I mean, Redford had just produced an Academy Award-winning movie on families. And so he said, yeah, he said, but, but you know, he, I'll guarantee you ex- all these things. And so Norman said yes. Then Norman started getting really excited because now here's going to be an Academy Award-winning director, top-notch Hollywood stuff, Bob Redford, not just anybody, and he's going to have his... And, he's gonna, and then he died. What? No. 
Yep, he died right before the movie was made. Oh, no, I didn't know this. Yeah, and so his two children were there. If you watch the movie, right at the very end, you see his father, Norman's father, yeah. preaching in the church, and you see Norman and his wife with their two kids. Those two kids were the two kids that came out and and were at their movie while it was being made to make sure that their father's wishes were accomplished when oh, the movie was made. Oh, how amazing. Yeah, it was really fun, yeah. Wow. So anyway, so um, and Jason got involved in it because... In March, before they began shooting, they called me. And they said, well, we know you've made all these videos over the years and all this kind of stuff, and we're making Movie River, and so it'll be heard. And I said, yeah, I've read the script. And How did you get the script? You know, well, I said, blah, and I told them, you know. Okay, well, anyway, we'd like you to come out and help us in the summer. I said, well, I can't do that. I said, I have fly fishing schools already lined up, and, and I'm working in the summer. That's what I do in the summer. I said, maybe you should talk to Jason. Your son. And My son. How old Because he's Jason? just, well, let's see, he would have been, I think he was 20. Okay. He just graduated, maybe 21. Yeah, 21 he was. He just graduated from university, and I said he's got a degree in film and TV production, film production, and he was topping his class, blah, 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 et cetera. And you should, well, maybe he could do an internship. And I said, Jason isn't going to do an internship. He's not going to go and work all summer for free on some Hollywood movie. Either he does or he doesn't. Well, I'll have him send a th- something and we'll interview him. Well, we sent it on Wednesday. They called us on Friday and said, we want to interview you. Once they found out what Jason, who Jason really was and all everything that he had done. And he'd been okay. shooting films since he was 16 and all that kind of stuff. So we, I said, well, when do you want to interview? And they said, well, we're going to shoot some stuff early on. We don't need him right away. And we said, okay, we're doing schools in July, first part of July. So we just kept in touch with them. The last school we did, we called them. And they said, can you be up here on, let's say, the 18th of July? It was. I don't know what day what it was, but it was something like that. Anyway. We said, yeah, if we leave on the 17th, we can drive all night. So we drove, left on the early on the morning of the 17th. We drove 1,250 miles in one day oh. from Raton, New Mexico to Livingston, Montana. And the next day, Jason, we went over and we were at this, on the set. And we, it was in a scene where the father's teaching the boys to cast using the metronome. And then the mother comes out and gets the metronome and goes back in. So they set up all the silk screens so they have nice uniform lighting and everything. And they had all the cameras set up. And Redford says, you know, okay, cut. And, and uh, you know, they start to talk. And, and uh, the father says, okay, go get the fishing poles. And I said, right. And I turned to the guy that was sitting beside me. We sat, sat down beside this guy. We didn't know who he was. And I said, I knew he had something to do with production. I said he never would have called it a pole. Yeah. It's, it's a fly rod. So he says, hey, Bob, 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 Bob. He goes out there, and they, they confer. Said, this guy must be somebody. So they go out there, and they confer. Turns out he's the line producer. Oh, okay. I mean, he's well. the guy that has control of everything yeah. on the set. Patrick Markey was his name. So anyway, um, so he said, well, get the, get, go get the book, Redford says. So they go get the book, and they look in there. And they, Oh, here it is. It's right here. Any angler that calls a fishing rod a pole does not deserve the name angler. Oh. It's rod. It's not pole. <laughs> so, you know, and then I... Then, then Patrick, oh, then Patrick, oh, okay, you're Jason, you're Gary, okay. So then they broke it down, they were waiting for the next scene, and while they're waiting on that, I said, there's a couple of fly rods sitting over there. I said, Jason, go get a fly rod and just, you know, cast. So Jason was sitting there, 80 feet line, 90 feet line, people shooting around like a maniac. They're sort of watching him a little bit, and they didn't say anything to him. Well, they'd already hired somebody to double for Paul, or for, uh, for to be Paul, and somebody to double to be Norman. So Brad had a double and Craig Sheffer had a double. Well, Jason became the double for both of those. Because oh, Jason that. could cast. Yeah. Not only that, but Jason taught Paul to cast one way and Norman to cast another way. Oh. And then when it came time to double, he would cast the way that Paul was supposed to cast and or cast the way. And Jason even did some doubling for um, Tom Skerritt and for old uh, Arnold at the end. Wow. Even, yeah, he did all that. Jason was, Jason's an amazing caster. I'll tell you what, he is really good. 
Anyway, uh, there's some really fun things that happened in that movie. A couple of them are worth probably talking about just because they're fun. Yeah, yeah, let's hear the it. First, the very first time Jason was on film was when Norman had come back from his six years uh, back east at Dartmouth. And now he's coming back, and now he's going to try to figure out what he's doing. And, and he goes and he meets Paul at the, at the newspaper, and they have a shot of whiskey in the morning, you know. And then, okay, let's go fishing tomorrow. So the next morning they meet, and they go down. And, and Norman's sort of rusty because he hasn't been doing except playing poker and drinking for six years, you know. And he can't fish very well. And, and then Paul says, and to a little further out, and Norman gives him sort of a dirty look, so Paul decides he better leave. So he goes upstream, and he's behind a big rock, and he casts out and catches a fish. Right. Well, that's Jason doing the casting and catching the fish. That's not Paul. So, there's a little slot in the trees. That's the only place you can cast. Jason said, do we have to have a fly in here? Because we'll get hung up here. He said, no, you got to have a fly. And he said, you'll never see it. The script calls for a fly. You'll put a fly on. So he puts a fly in there. <laughs> so behind the big rock is John Bailey. He's the fish. Oh, okay. So John John was on the whole set, and John did advising and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so they, you know, they've known each other for a long time. So, anyway. So Jason's there, and he's, it takes about an hour to set everything up. Right. Now, you got to remember that... When they do a movie, a, a, an A movie, and they're using 35-millimeter film, you don't move those cameras around easily. Mm. The cameras are worth about 500000 bucks a piece, so you don't drop them in the river. Mm-mm. And so it takes a while. So there's about an hour setting up to the, for this particular shot to get it ready. So in that time, Jason's practicing. Pretty soon he can throw that fly into that open slot back there. Doesn't have to look, and we don't go like this. <laughs> Nothing to it. You know, he can even cast, oh, like crazy. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So then he's up there waiting around. I can do this. No problem. Okay. Where did it go? You know. And then all of a sudden, click. Quiet on the set. Click. Action. And Jason realizes there's 250 pairs of eyes watching him. And there's an Academy Award winning director watching him. Suddenly it's like, boom, and he hangs his fly up right in the tree. It's just this oh. perfect back. And oh my gosh, he's just so embarrassing. He just hangs his head and drops his arms down. Oh. That's the end of me. You know, they're going to throw me off the set. No. Click, cut, click. Hey, Borger, we're going to send that one to your dad. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Then he realizes, hey, shooting with Redford isn't any different than shooting with my dad. So from then on, it was simple. Oh, that's so cool. And actually, he became pretty good friends with with, uh, Redford. And Patrick Markin, he became really good buddies. And so Jason got to do so much on that set, it was unbelievable. He would have to. I mean, he got to be, because he'd been shooting video since he was 16, they gave him a video camera. They gave him a crew. They gave him stand-ins. Now, stand-ins are people that go and literally stand where the actor is supposed to stand. That's not a double. Doubles do what the actors do. Mm-hmm. Stand-ins stand where the actor is supposed to stand so that they can figure out how the scene's going to come out. All right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So Jason took these people, went all the way up to Taylor's Fork on the Gallatin and floated from the Taylor's Fork all the way down to Bozeman. And they filmed people in all these different scenes like, okay, this scene calls for Norman to be here and so on. Okay, Norman, you go over there. Paul, you go over there. And then they would shoot it to see whether or not that was a location that they wanted to shoot at. Then Redford would fly out. He'd go back and he'd look at the film. And then Redford would fly out. And that's the way they picked all the spots along the river where they wanted to shoot these different scenes. Oh, okay. they did. They did it that way. And then Jason got to do all sorts of things, some of which were funny. Have you seen? Have you ever seen the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Watch the very end where Paul lifts up the big fish after he's gone down through the rapids. Mm-hmm. I should tell you a story about that, too. It's one of my favorite scenes. There are three different people going down there. Yeah. At first, there was John Deach, who was the production, the fly fishing producer, production guy. He was the coordinator. And John went down partway. The second one was Jason. And the third one, of course, was Brad Pitt right at the very end, getting up because you had to have Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. To shoot that particular scene, they had to go. They shot it in the summer. But they didn't have enough footage. 
So they went and they did what are called pickups. A pickup means you go back and you shoot the thing all over again, but they shot it in March. They actually went and cut down trees and moved them and put them in places so it looked like it wasn't winter time there. And the water's like 31 degrees and Jason's going down this. They actually had had a wetsuit on underneath his clothes and they had big uh, propane tanks at the end with blowers on them trying to keep him warm. I was never Purple the whole time. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I said, one of you, Jason, I'd never do that for him, but... But anyway, so they did that. But at the very end where, where Paul holds up the fish, if you look at it very carefully, you'll notice it's a male fish half the time and female fish the other half the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the reason is, before they ever shot the movie, and they were I mean, that scene anyway, and, and those parts of it, they knew they needed these fish. Mm-hmm. There was a guy in Livingston that had a pond. He's just on the east edge of Livingston. And it's a, it's fed by a little spring creek. Okay. And he had really big trout in Nobody fished in it. And they convinced him that they should... He should let them catch some big fish and use them in the movie. And so Jason went over there with some other guys, and, and I fished too there. And we caught some trout that were nearly 36 inches long. Some really, Whoa. really big fish. They're steelhead. Yeah, they were steelhead size. And we put these in this little spring creek, and we put a mesh up above them, you know, a little wall it off, and put the little net up there and a little net down below, and they were very happy in there. Mm-hmm. Well, they went over that day to get the fish, and they somebody let them out. No. Somebody probably, wasn't, I don't, wasn't the people that owned the property, but somebody would come in and pulled these things out. So Jason and the guy he took with him grabbed fly rods and fished like meaning they caught two fish, both about 30 inches, one male and one female. <sighs> so that's Adam and Eve, and those are the two at the, end of the, at the end of the movie. And if you look closely, the male, of course, has a longer jaw. You can tell right away. Yeah. But um, if you don't know that, you'd never see it in the movie. No. Well, that kind of stuff happened throughout the whole movie. I mean, they were just doing it. Listen, Hollywood is smoke and mirrors. It doesn't matter what you're shooting. For Fishing sure. movies or, or car chase movies, it's all smoke and mirrors. And I'll tell you what else you watch for. When you watch it, look at Norman. Look very carefully at Craig Sheffer's arms are pretty hairy. Right. Then when he gets to cast and you see a close-up, you don't see much hair at all. Because Jason, Jason doesn't have yeah. hairy arms. Yeah, so that's... And if you watch closely, you'll see it all. How surreal. That oh, is yeah, that's really funny doing that kind of so stuff. So cool. Yeah. Okay, so, so so what about you then? So at this point now, you're you're doing classes. Mm-hmm. You Obviously, you've had a son. Yep. Did you, just the one son? Do you have any other children? We just have one child. Okay. Jason was born when I was actually in school the last year we were in school at Madison. Okay. 1969. So through the last year, well, actually it was more than that. It was a year and a half later. Yeah, he was two and a half when he moved. So So you're being a husband, a dad, a teacher, or uh-huh. a professor, excuse me. Yeah. And you're doing the fly fishing program. And my wife, Nancy, since she was also a fly fisher and mm-hmm. still is, was involved in teaching in fly fishing schools for about the first 15 years or so. Wow. As long as Fenwick was there. When the Fenwick schools finished, then I started doing stuff on my own. She didn't get too much involved after that, but up until that time, yeah. So did you stick mm-hmm. with, with Sage for a while? No, Sage didn't do the fly fishing schools then like we had done before. Right. So after that, I just did my own fly fishing schools for a while, and then I stopped doing them because I got too busy doing other stuff. With life. Yeah, just with life. And and then I'd get all these shops that would want me to come and do fly fishing school at their shop, so I really didn't have time to do it myself. So I would, And I still do that yeah. kind of stuff. So when did you write your first book? 1979. And which book was that? That was Nymphing. And that was a book which filled a niche. It's still in, it's still in print from 1979. still in print. At that time, I was looking around for something to write. I wanted to write a book, and I wanted to do it on something that didn't have a lot of other books. And as I was looking around, there's only a couple of books that were out on nymph fishing at the time. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the stack poll and explained to him. I did a query letter, which is typically the way you write books. You send a letter telling what you're going to do, you know, how it fits in with the whole thing, and so et cetera, et cetera. So I immediately got a response back and said, yeah, go for it. So uh, I did. And uh, 
Then right after that one, two years, see, 79, yeah, two years later I did Naturals, which was a book that described all the food organisms of the trout, had keys to identify them with, and all kinds, and fly patterns and that kind of stuff. And that one is still in print also. But Carrie, you're, and, you have your doctorate. Mm-hmm. How come I don't, am I just missing this? I don't see Dr. Borger on the books. Well, typically when I do the fishing stuff, I don't want to, I want to put Dr. Borger on there, I mean... Who's going to know what that means? You know, I'm just Gary as far as... I tell people, yeah, I'm Dr. Borger. Yes, I am. To my students, I was Dr. Borger. That's what they called me, and I expected them to call me that, and I didn't allow them to call me anything else. Right. Because there had to be that student-teacher separation always. Mm-hmm. But in the fly fishing industry, you know, I'm just me. I'm not Dr. Borger trying to teach a fly... Not trying to teach in a university setting. So yeah. I'm just Gary Borger. Yeah, this is so interesting. I mean, I didn't know half of this stuff. I feel like a real jerk because I didn't even know you had your doctorate. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't. I don't advertise it. Yeah, good if you go you and you look on my, I think if you go and look on my, you know, my theater or something like that, I think on there, I say, you know, that I'm a professor emeritus, you know, at the University of Wisconsin, Wausau campus or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, and I do talk about a little bit in there about going and getting my PhD and that kind of stuff in my fishing bio and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I don't expect people in the fishing industry to call me Dr. Borger because, you know, my doctor doesn't deal with fishing, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, it always establishes a, a, a kind of formality that I don't want to be there. I really, I actually really respect that. I mean, you think yeah. about when you call somebody doctor, there's a certain kind of, there's a barrier there. And that's what I wanted when I was teaching. I wanted that barrier. That's got to always be there. They have to respect me as Dr. Borger, not just as another guy up there talking. I don't have a master's degree, I have a PhD, and I expect that kind of respect. But in the fly fishing industry, hey, I'm just another guy. Yeah. No, yeah. well, you're not just another guy. Well, <laughs> but I know what not you're in, Not in one sense, but I but in the sense that, you know, I'm just another fisherman, yes. Sure. But not in the sense that uh, what I've done. And what I've done has been basically based on uh, my training as a scientist, which means you have to read volumes and volumes of stuff, and you have to know the literature. And you, I mean, if you don't know the literature... You're dead meat in the water. Yeah. And if you're doing research work, you better understand all of it. And so in that regard, I've read tremendous number of fly fishing books and articles and all that kind of stuff, and I can remember a lot of it. So as a consequence, I'm pretty good at BSing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell good stories and I can talk, and I know as much as, as the next guy when it comes to fishing tactics and those kinds of things. And as a consequence, and because of the books and that kind of stuff, I've attained a certain kind of notoriety. And that's nice. It's nice in terms of being able to work and, and do it. And it's also nice in the sense that I get to meet a lot of people, which right. is always fun, too. So not only do I know just a few guys that fish, I mean, I know people all over the world. Yeah. And they know who I am, and I know who they are, and so it's it's great fun to be able to do that. No, I can, I can yeah. see that. Every time I see you at the shows, you you still look happy, you know? You oh, sure. Look, I am happy. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> so tell me this, then. You had said that in the 70s, I think you'd said in the 70s, there weren't a lot of how-to books. It was a lot of literature. Yeah, there weren't, right? there weren't as many how-to books starting, well, probably about 1972, like I said, is when this explosion occurred, in, not only in the fly tying, but also because now suddenly we're getting graphite, we got, we're transitioning from glass to graphite, we've got a much better casting tool than we've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Initially, some of them tried to build graphite rods that emulated bamboo, and finally decided graphite was its own fiber, 
and started making rods that actually could perform and at at a level that nobody had ever seen before, which meant the casting got better, which meant people got better at casting, which all of a sudden and everybody got more enthusiastic about all of it. And about sometime around that time, when we started doing these fly fishing schools in 73, all of a sudden everybody, hey, Fenwick's doing fly fishing schools, we're going to be doing fly fishing schools. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, 1982, I made the very first instructional fly fishing video ever made by anybody in the world. That was really? the one on, yeah, on Nymphing, 1982. But why did it take so And then all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, everybody started doing videos because all of a sudden they saw the value of that. But did they not and see I, the value before? I mean, I have a question, and this is just, this could be totally off, but, I mean, let's just take Steelhead, for example, because mm-hmm. that's a world I really understand, sure. the timeline, when it comes to the timeline. They were Steelheading in the 50s. Oh, sure. And the 60s. Oh, sure. Is the reason why the how-tos didn't come out until later because of ego? Was it because of secrecy? What was it? Well, there's a bunch of things involved in it, but you have to remember that the technology was not there. You think about it. Videos, I mean, shooting a video camera in 1983 in in a movie studio, that that thing was bigger than a 16 mil, I mean, a 35 millimeter camera. It was enormous. Yeah. You couldn't take it take it out, but the potential for it was enormous also. Look what we have now. Right. You can shoot video with your DSLR camera. You can shoot it with your iPhone. Yeah, you can shoot it with your iPhone. But what about with writing now? I mean, why? Well, even in the, even in the written word, um, there wasn't the kind of you might call it intensity of learning that there is after DVDs became available, videos became available, and kind of stuff. The whole idea of fly fishing started to increase in 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 what you could do in it, and, and all of a sudden now you had. People telling you how to nymph fish, and people telling you how to fish dry flies, and people that was completely different than anybody had ever done before. You can't write a book and do what you can do in a DVD. You just can't. Books have a different kind of use and a different kind of function. So when you see this and you begin to apply, okay, here's what books can do, here's what videos can do, here's what we can do in the schools, and you begin to see that, then all of a sudden people begin looking, hey, that's a pretty cool video on the on the Bow River, or here's one we shot on the Bighorn, or here's something we did in New Zealand, or. And so it increases their ability not only to learn more about how to fish, but what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And the whole fishing process itself, the fly fishing process itself. And people began to realize, yeah, there's a lot more to it. Well, with that growth also came, like I said, graphite rods. But now all of a sudden you start start to see people doing things. Now people have been fly fishing in the salt for a long time. But now people started coming out and doing things in the salt that nobody had ever done before because now you got tackle that you can do it with. Yeah. Now suddenly, I mean, you're not casting rods that weigh literally five and, I mean, ten ounces. A 12-weight glass rod is like a is like a pole vaulting pole. I mean, it's an enormous thing. But you put that in graphite, you got five ounces, maybe six ounces. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you could do things you could never do before. And all of a sudden, this whole idea of fishing the flats and everything else. Now you could shoot videos on it, and you could people could go, well, "You can go bone fishing like that? Whoa! I think I'll do that." <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden, everybody's doing it. So I mean, the big elephant in the room is the movie. Everybody says that after that movie came out, the fly fishing industry boomed. It did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you? What are your thoughts on that? It, it well, was, it's a great. It also thing. collapsed back again. It's it's higher than it was before the movie, but not as high as it was immediately after the movie. Because of the romance in the movie, I mean, it was such a wonderful movie. The river runs through it, just touched everybody. Anybody saw it, I mean, it touched your life. There's still parts that I cry about when I see it. I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of those kind of movies. And, uh, and everybody wanted to get into fly fishing. So we had a tremendous upsurge. 
Well, then, you know, people realize it's expensive. You travel all over the place. I got other things I need to do. I play golf, too, and my kids need attention. And, you know, some of them stayed with fly fishing, but there are a lot that, that didn't. Right. Because of that movie, there was a lot of development in rods and other th- kinds of things because so much money came into the industry. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they had money they didn't have before, so suddenly they could do R&D they couldn't do before. Right. And so we saw uptick, very strong uptick in reels especially and rods Hmm. lines not so much so lines really haven't developed too much until about the time skagit lines came out okay yeah okay now since you know a lot about two-handed casting the two-handed casting stuff in england and in scotland where spay casting really sort of started was on the river spay do you know the name Alexander Grant? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know Alexander and his 195-foot cast with no shooting any line at all? Yes, yes. Yes, okay, designer, okay. Legendary. He was also the guy, yeah, legendary, also the guy that designed the line. Mm-hmm. He built his own lines. Well, not much had been done in that because two-handed casting was basically used in Europe for Atlantic salmon fishing. Not very much in this country. Even up in the Maritimes, basically, it was all single-hand stuff and still is. Well, when they started really getting into steelhead fishing with lines, with the two-handed rods, they discovered that the classic spay line doesn't work very well. Sure, it works okay in the summer. Sure, it works, works okay for throwing a fly across and dragging it underneath the surface. Sure, but when you're trying to fish on the bottom with a sink tip line, yeah, you can't not. even turn it over. You can't get it out of the water. <laughs> so that's why they came up with the schedule line. These guys figured it out. I don't, I don't know who was actually given credit for it. Two or three people have been given credit for it over the years. Yeah. But somebody finally realized that what you're casting when you make a spay cast is not the line laying on the water, but the line that's in the D-loop. The more mass you can put in the D-loop, the more line you can pull out of the water. So what you do is you put a tremendous amount of mass in the D-loop by making a big, fat Skagit line, yep. and then you can hang a tip on it, and you can throw that sucker right across the river like nobody's business. Throw anything on it, yeah. Yeah, you can, put, you, know, you, can, you can hang a couple of dogs on the end and cast them across <laughs> yeah. the river if you want. But So now you can use big flies that are very heavy. You can weight them. You can put sink tips on. That transformed the whole two-handed thing. I mean, so fast you can't even believe it. Yeah, I was there. I remember before yeah. Skagit lines. Yeah, now you go to Europe, and you look. What are they all using? Skagit lines. Yeah. I mean, there's some well, places this, where they use scandies, yeah, yeah. but gadgets. I mean, they just took over the world almost instantaneously because it's so easy to cast them and because you can use sinking lines, sink tip lines on them. It was a flash every night. Yeah, it was. It's just amazing. There was a major transition. Actually, funny you should say that because I always discuss with people the gadget line, you know, the big revolution, if you will. But yeah. but there there was a major change in all sorts of, of even single hand lines at that point. Think about well, all the why? shooting heads that came out. Why? Look, because of Skagit's. Yeah, I never really would have. I never would have put oh, that yeah. together. No, no, the Skagit lines were what led the way. Jim Vincent, mm. who's the founder of Rio, right? Okay, and Jim was a friend of mine, good friend of mine actually, and and Jim was a steelhead fishing maniac. He loved the Dean. He loved to go up there all the time. And they came up with the idea of first of all, they did what they called the wind cutter. Well, that was my first bay line. Yeah, that was before there were skagits. They did wind cutters. Mm-hmm. And basically what that was was a bigger tip on the end so that when you turned it over, you had a little more weight out there. To turn, then all of a sudden, ding, 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 hey, more weight. Oh, okay, all of a sudden skagit lines came out. Right. Well, when that process happened, people realized, gee, you could actually change lines. Now we're starting to talk, instead of talking about design, we're talking about mass profiles. Mm-hmm. 
So now the mass profile of a Skagit is huge amount out the front and the skinny line behind. Get the huge amount going. It pulls everything. Bingo, away you go. Right. Well, why not do something with single-hand lines? Yeah. All of a sudden you can you can get single-hand lines that are basically mini Skagits. Yeah. You can get lines that have a different profile. Yeah. Gee, we had the profile where it was all in the back. Let's put some profile in the front. Let's change this all around. Yeah. They're still experimenting with all that sort of stuff. Coming up, Gary speaks with me about his thoughts on the sports advancement, his experience as an author, and his enthusiasm as a whole. Again, thank you to Watermaster for making this episode possible. From safe wading to accessible fishing, lightweight transport to reliable rafting, now they've also come through for us here on Anchored. Please check them out at www.bigskyinflatables.com. You've seen so many changes over the years in this industry. Oh, yeah. How old are you now? 71. Wow. I mean, you've really seen a lot in in your years. All the way from bamboo through graphite and boron and all the way from silk right up through all all the plastic stuff they were doing, all the way from junky old gut leaders to all the... I mean, some of this stuff is so strong today you can't even believe it. What makes you... What... I'm trying to phrase this without being offensive to the rest of the world. You know what I mean? What pleases you the most about the changes that you've seen in the industry so far? Uh, Let's see. Several things. One is uh, better communication among anglers. Mm -hmm. And that's occurred just because communication has improved so much. But, you know, you see clubs which you didn't really have too much before. You didn't have as many clubs, obviously. Now we have more clubs, more people getting together, communicating the sport. I would like to see more communication of the sport to younger people, which seems to be happening some places. Not everywhere, but I see it happening some places. Uh, I'd like to see more of that. That's one of the things that I think is very interesting. When you look at it from the standpoint of the technical stuff, of course, the development of new rods and new reels and uh, new lines and leaders, that's just gone so far beyond anything that even could have been imagined in the early 50s mm-hmm. and for early for uh, the late 40s and early 50s. So we've gone from cane and silk lines and gut leaders to graphite, you know, plastic-coated lines, which and then the plastic they're using today is, is just extraordinary stuff. And they're building lines so wonderfully now these days to leader material that's just unimaginably strong. You can use 8X now that was basically the same as, as 4X back in the silk days. It's just mm-hmm. amazing how much stronger it is. Finer and better and just stronger. So all that is wonderful. From my own standpoint of just fishing and why do I fish, well, number one, I like it, you know. Number two, my goal has always been to figure out ways to do this that are are easier and better than ways that have been done before. So my goal in fly tying is always to produce flies that are easier to tie, faster to tie, and will still do the same thing that a complicated fly will do. So when you think about salmon flies, you know, you've got full-dress salmon flies. You can hardly even buy them now because they're so expensive to tie. Right. You can actually catch more salmon on hair wing flies and maybe even on nymphs than you can on those but if you're going to do swinging you can't swing nymphs you're allowed but you can catch an awful lot of them on nymphs let me tell you (laughs) steelhead same thing they'll take nymphs very well thank you (laughs) okay so that that's the kind of stuff that that really pleases me is the ability to be able to go to a situation figure out what's going on and be able to catch fish in a situation regardless of what's happening and regardless of where i am in the world right and there are certain basic things always that come out of that I think no matter where you fish, you need to think like a predator, you need to act like a predator, you need to be able to cast really, really well, mm-hmm. uh, you need to be able to watch what's going on and not just go out and start fishing, be able to pay attention to what's happening. 
Yeah, and be observant. And be observant to what's going on in the situation. It's interesting to hear you say that because you you know so much about our history and mm-hmm. you seem to really be passionate about our history. Mm-hmm. Where's the balance between wanting to move forward and make things different than they've been in past and still maintain that appreciation for yesterday? Okay, I'll tell you what I tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Tradition is wonderful because it brings information from one generation to the next. Tradition is horrible because it brings information from one generation to the next. <laughs> yes. It's unfiltered. Yes, yeah. So my great passion is to filter all of it. Okay, yeah. And if you want to call me anything, you could call me an iconoclast. I love to smash idols. Can you explain Especially that? idols in fly fishing. Well, for example, if you don't use this kind of a rod, you can't catch any fish. Right. And or if you don't fish dry flies, blah, blah, blah is going to happen. Yeah. You know, you can't use nymphs over there. Yes, you can. Yeah. You've got to use this knot or it won't work. Get out of here. There's hundreds of knots and they all work. You can't cast that way. Yes, I can. If I'm catching fish, my casting's perfect. You know? Gosh almighty. So So we get into these things. I think we sometimes get into these things because we've done it a certain way all of our lives. And we're not willing to change because if you change, that means you have to admit you don't know everything. (laughs) Okay, that's a very good point. And it's hard to do. It's hard for humans to do that. So instead of saying, I don't know everything, say, hey, I'd like to learn more about what's going on out there. Mm -hmm. That's the way we acquire new information, build new information, figure out new ways to do things, better things. I mean, the guys that that built the rockets and went to the moon, they didn't go like, we can't go to the moon because we don't know how to make rockets. No, they said, hey, we're going to go to the moon. Let's figure out how to make a rocket. Right. We need to think that same way, that same process. That's basically what science is. Science basically says, we don't know anything about this. Let's look at it. Yeah, okay, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. This works. No, this is so interesting to hear you say this. So talk to me about, I, I have to celebrate that you're an author. So tell me how many books you've written so far. Uh, let's see, what am I up to? <laughs> I think like 12 maybe. And I really want to talk about your current book project because it's fascinating okay. to me. All right. Uh, I'm currently working on a series of 20 books. The overall title, the overarching title is called Fly Fishing. The idea behind the series is to focus on 20 different parts of fly fishing much more intensely than I've done in anything that I've written. Some people have called the book I did presentation, they've even called it the Fishing Bible. I don't think it goes quite that far. But it's it was a very good book. We sold 10,000 copies almost instantly, and it's not been reprinted because it was produced in 1995, right at the sort of the the cusp of that point where all this line stuff was coming, all this new rod stuff was coming on, and I didn't want to reprint it until I had an opportunity to for things to sort of settle down. I will do, I will reissue a second edition of it, but it's going to be with a lot of new information in it. Excellent. You've yeah. got to do that kind of stuff. You just can't keep reprinting the same book over and over again. Oh, you should add new information. I've basically taken that concept of all the things that presentation are, which to me is everything you know and everything you are about fly fishing. If you know it, you can use it, and if you don't know it, you can't use it. It's just very simple. And I've broken it down into these 20 things. Well, they're not exactly 20 because they're two books on casting, but um, but into, into 20 parts, and I'm doing some very intense stuff. Somebody said to me, these books are so dense, you gotta, you, know, you almost have to pick them up with a forklift because there's so much information in them. Yeah. I said, well, that was the intention. Yeah. It was not the intention to write a bunch of fluff. It was an intention to put down as much as I possibly can about the development of these things, how they all came about, how they all apply to the way we fish, and maybe what's, you know, we could go forward with some information, too. Mm-hmm. So that's what this series is about, and I've done five books out of the 20 so far. The next two are books on casting. The next one's called The Perfect Cast 1, then The Perfect Cast 2. After that, comes kind of going to come a new nymphing book. 
Okay, fishing so and nymph and dry flies. How long I mean, and wet flies. Fishing and nymph and wet flies. Yeah. How long on average does it take you to write one of these books? Depends on, on how much time I have for doing other things. Well, like if I'm not involved in a... In, if I'm not involved in moving, as I just was, yeah. or not involved in doing something else, I could knock out a book like that if I just had only that to do, nothing else. I could write a book, a uh, 192-page book in probably four months. What? Or less. Oh, my. So what's your secret? Do you just lock yourself in a room and say, I'm not leaving till I've written 40 pages? <laughs> well, my secret is I don't write them in four months because I, I can't. I can't. I can't lock myself away. If I could, I could whack them up like nobody's business. Oh, Writing is not something that, as, as Red Barber, who was one of the great sport writers, said, writing is an unnatural act. A lot of people can't write well, and that's because they've not read a lot. The more you read, the better you can write, because you can you see how words are used and can assimilate that information. And a lot of people haven't had the opportunity that I've had to speak. Remember, I was a college professor for 28 years, and I taught 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Right. So I had to be able to communicate in a way that could take a very complicated thing like uh, the biology of plants and turn it into something that meant something to somebody. Right. In which they could remember the information. And I have students of mine that still call me up and tell me, hey, do you remember when you were talking about such and such? Because it was relating a dump truck to something or relating a, you know, something else to it. And, you know, and it's fun to do that kind of stuff. But in the process of doing that, you begin to see how information fits together. Mm-hmm. Part of the thing you need to be able to do if you're going to be as good as a lecturer is you need to be able to think on your feet and put information together without having to go to notes to figure out what you're doing. Right. So I never used notes, never used notes, never did, never do. I would just walk in with a chalk, throw it down, grab two pieces of chalk, start writing left-handed, right-handed, drawing pictures on the board like a maniac. Yeah, sure. Then you fill all the boards up. Right Then you start erasing from the end, not from where you started, but from the back end. That way the students don't get that information, and that's what you test them on. Oh, you're <laughs> tricky. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. Anyway. You're a brat. Whole, yeah, you're a that, brat. <laughs> that's right. The whole idea was, whole idea was, if they saw me doing that, yeah. and never looking at a note, never, never brought a single, not even a, not even a note card into them. If they could see me doing that, they could go, hey, listen, if he can do that, I can do that. See. Now, if I'm up there just reading from notes the whole time, you know, they're all... Yeah. But if I'm up there dancing around and talking, telling all kinds of stories and drawing like a maniac on the board and all this kind of stuff, everybody stays awake. Yeah. And they remember it because there's two ways you can remember things. One, I tell you something to hit you in the face. You'll remember it forever. Mm -hmm. Number two, I make a joke about it. But do you write like that? Do you think that comes through your writing? Well, I think it comes through in some places in my writing. But the ability to take information and put it on down onto the page is the same as talking. So if I can talk without having to look at notes, I can write. And I can write the same way I talk. But, of course, I have to use a certain structure when I do that. There have to be real sentences, not phrases. You know, they have to have verbs and they have, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes into the nonsense of English, right? Right. And I decided when I was, I think when I was in my master's program, if I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to write and really write. Mm-hmm. I think my high school teachers would be amazed. It's interesting speaking with you because I had no idea you were so well spoken. <laughs> and and it makes sense now. I mean it all makes sense, but I'm going to read I will read your writing different uh, differently now that I've had time to speak with you and listen to, you know, your enthusiasm. I I don't know. I just I'm super ignorant, I guess. I just never associated you with enthusiasm because I knew you're, I knew I know that you're an academic 
And I, I know that you're a very smart man. I've read your, some of your writing before. Mm-hmm. Granted, not enough. I will change that. I promise you. <laughs> but, well, you know, I just always associated you with, not dry by any means, but just so incredibly informative. I I had never stopped to really try to pull your personality out of it. But you have so much personality. Well, the problem is when you're writing, if you're going to describe things to people, you have to be... The hardest writing to write is descriptive writing. Yeah. And I always challenge my students. Now, when, when I taught at the university, and I taught five-credit botany, one of the things they were required to do was they had to do six research papers. We did the research in the lab. Then they had to write a research paper on what we had done. So they had to have the sections. They had to have a, an abstract. They had to have an introduction. They had to have materials and methods. They had to have a discussion. And then they have a, had to have a literature cited section. And then I proofread all of those. And then I would tell them why it was, you know. So that's part of the information that I have acquired over the years is how to proof stuff, too. Right. And and a lot of people who are writers don't have the opportunities that I've had to be able to do all that. I mean, I had to do that for my job. And I insisted that my students do it, and I insisted that I sit there and read all those things. Not because I wanted to improve my writing, but because I wanted to help these kids become more than they'd been before. Right. Some of them were good writers, most of them were not. And then we would talk about it. I actually taught a course called Writing in the Sciences, which was for students specifically who were writing descriptive things. One of my challenges to my students was this. Okay, without using any drawings at all, I want you to write for me one page. You can type it single line if you want to. How to tie your shoes. Oh, that's a tough one. You see, all of a sudden you're in a point where you just... how do you tell people to form a bow? How do you tell them to hold the thing while you're going? You're thinking, how do you do that? Almost none of them ever did it really right. In fact, none of them ever did. <laughs> I can't even do it right. Not without illustrations, you see. Right. The point was, when you're doing things like this and you're trying to describe things, you need illustrations as much as you need writing. People say a picture's worth a thousand words, but you still need a thousand words. Oh, that's you so see. good. Because yes. if you don't have them, picture is not worth anything. You need words to tell what's going on, and here's what the picture uses to describe what I'm doing here, but my, my description is also useful for what's happening over there in that picture, you see. Oh, that's so interesting. So interesting. So <clears throat> the writing part of it is really not something that's hard. I also write, uh, the other part of my life is my Christian part. I was going to ask you about that. I was actually afraid to ask you about that. Oh, don't be afraid to ask but about that. As a man Nobody's who's going to bite you. Well, but, <laughs> as a man who's so science-driven. Sure. Because I, I know that you're a, a religious or spiritual, <clears throat> that you're a man of God. Uh-huh. I just, I'm astonished by how scientific you are. Who do you think is the, the most superior scientist of all? I know. You're the talking, guy that you're, invented science. Pre- it's God. I mean, God he's the guy. Have, I'm not religious by any <laughs> means, but... but I definitely, I don't I guess I'm spiritual. We have a relationship. We have an excellent relationship. We talk, That's very good. We talk every single day. But, you know, I just, I would never have associated you as a scientist. Like I said, it's my well, own ignorance. This is why I want this podcast to learn about this. Yeah, a lot of people think that scientists are atheists. Yeah, yeah, you're actually, right. Actually, a lot of people do. Actually, there's probably more scientists that are not atheists than are. Because they begin to realize relatively quickly when they begin looking at the detail of this stuff that these kinds of things couldn't have just come out of nowhere the fine tuning of the universe is one of those kinds of things that anybody that investigates that realizes the chances for that to happen are literally one in the number of atoms that there are in the universe Mm. 
So the fine-tuning of the universe to create a universe in which life could exist is one in that many... (laughs) So, in other words, it couldn't have happened by itself. It's impossible. That introduces the concept of somebody else that did it. That introduces the concept of deity. And from there, then, you go into, well, if this deity really exists, what are the things that he can do and can't do? And then you begin looking at different things. And, of course, as Christians, we accept the Bible as, as the way in which the world was... Now... Hold on just a second. The word was not made in five days. It's not 5,000 years old. It's 13.6 billion for the universe, and the earth is about 5 billion years old. I'm a scientist. I know that. Okay? And God doesn't go, naughty, 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 because you don't believe it's 5,000 years old. No, he goes like, hey, this is pretty cool. When you think about it, here's a God who took 13.6 billion years to make a planet I could live on. And he took enough time and energy and effort to do that so that I could be here. You see, that's the way it really works, not the other way around. But as far as the writing goes, what I was going to say is I write a weekly column that I send to people all over the world called Jacob's Well. It's a Bible study that I do. So I get constant writing all the time. The point was not that I do this. The point was that I get a chance to exercise my writing skills in all kinds of different venues, lots of different ways, not in descriptive writing, but also writing that associates us with a deity and and you know, talks about the way we're supposed to live, in addition to doing all the fishing stuff, in addition to doing other kinds of writing, which I've done, scientific writing and so on. Right. What about a fiction? Have you thought about writing a fiction? Eh, not very much. No? I mean, I could, and I probably could do a decent job of it, but I don't have enough time, number one. It doesn't call to you. You know, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't say like, yeah, get up in the morning and start knocking out fiction. You know, yeah, okay, but. Right. My focus is more on, how, what could I do in my writing that would help people mm. to really do something? So if you look at my fishing writing, it's designed as a way to help people become better at what they do. Yeah, I do see that with you. Yeah. And I hear that in your presentations. Yeah. What do so, you think of yourself as? Do you, I, I mean, that's a very, very poorly worded question. <laughs> no, it's do, not. Do you think of yourself, though, as, as, as far as an angler goes? Do you see yourself as a trout angler? Are you a saltwater angler? I mean, I get the feeling you're very well-traveled, but... Here's what I am as a fly fisher. Yeah. Most of my time I spend for trout because it's it's much easier to get the trout than it is to get the salt water, to get the freshwater, you know, tropical species and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If you looked at fly fishing world over, more than 80, probably 85% of people fish for trout. There's a reason for it. Not necessarily because it's the easiest thing to get to, because it isn't always. But the reason is, if I go to fish in South America for payara, they have big fangs, they eat giant fish like that, you use lead core line, 10 weights to 12 weights, and you're honking on these things all day. That's fun. But you can't cast dry flies to them. Right. They take big minnows, and that big minnows are like 18 inches long. That's it. If you're going to fish for piranha, you're not going to fish dry flies to them. No. <laughs> you know, bass pretty come pretty close to trout. But when you look at trout, they take anything from size 28, if you can get them, or even smaller, if you had smaller hooks, 32s you can catch them on. All the way up to leeches and mice, giant minnows, you know, all that kind of stuff. Everything in between. Not only that, but the British, fortunately, spread brown trout all over the world. And then people start hauling rainbows. And so we've got rainbows and cold water systems all over the whole world. Mm-hmm. There aren't too many places you can go to catch pirata. Go to the, you know, they can go to the Amazon basin. Basically, that's it. Right. And so 
when you look at the, the the whole of fly fishing, more people get involved in trout fishing because you got dry flies, you got nymphs, you got streamer flies, you got you know all this other kind of stuff. You got huge variety, huge range. It can be all over the place. You can be fishing out in your backyard, or you can go to New Zealand, or you know, fish in southern Australia, down the snowies, or down in Tasmania, or you can go to England, or you can go to Iceland. And, I mean, there's trout everywhere. Yeah, there are. Just because of that, and so I think more people fish for trout simply because it's a species that's. More widespread. Yeah, you can fish for bluegills, but gosh, I can't go to Alaska and fish for bluegills, but I can go to Alaska and fish for salmon and trout, see. Right. What do you want us to see you as when you're gone? Do you want us to <laughs> see you as an educator, a writer? What, what would you like us to see you as? I'm probably an educator more than anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been my whole life has been educating at the university level and, and even, at the, even at the fishing level. That's been my intent is to try to help people better understand fly fishing and not get locked in quite so much to the tradition of, you know. I mean, I know when we when we went to graphite, it was nuts. They were trying to make graphite rods to bend like cane, trying to give them cane action. Why? Because it was a relatively short period when glass was around, and glass is, and glass they were using in those days was relatively soft glass. Uh, it's not like the glass we're using the new glass rods, and as a consequence, the the glass rods were a lot like the cane rods. And people that were building them. Now you got to remember, Jim Green's a designer at Fenwick, right? Mm-hmm. Jim Green started out with cane rods, silk lines, went to glass, went to graphite. So in that transition, you see, they're bringing the knowledge that they had from the past and the way they cast into the next material. And then they began to realize, hey, this material is so much different. We need to be able to use, utilize it differently. And now you look at glass, or I mean, uh, graphite rods. They're nothing like cane rods. No. They're graphite, and they they finally have gotten managed to get a hold of the quality of that graphite brings into building a rod. Super lightweight. You can feel the line on the tip. When you cast cane, you cast the rod. You don't cast the line. I love. I'll be honest with you, Gary. I've been fishing a cane rod the last three three years or so, mm-hmm. and even on my single hands, I've been fishing cane, and I've been fishing silk. Oh, it's, oh, it's wonderful. And I love it. I oh, love sure. it. But I guarantee you, you will not feel the silk line off the tip of that cane rod the way I can feel line off the tip of a graphite rod. I certainly don't. And as a consequence, it's much easier to teach people to cast using a graphite rod than it is using a cane rod. No question. Now, if you already can cast really well, going back and using cane, I have some cane rods that I love. Mm -hmm. Going back and casting cane is wonderful. But graphite, I'm telling you what. (laughs) <laughs> that's my that's my tool. That's a tool for fishing, for serious fishing. Do you cover saltwater fishing in your books? I will, yes. Oh, how exciting. And I have covered some stuff in, in presentation. We did some stuff on uh, on flats fishing and so on. But really, you see these divisions occurring. Okay, there's flats fishing and there's trout fishing, and trout fishing guys can't flats fish, and flats fishing guys don't trout fish. No. That's nonsense. No. If you can cast, you can do it, period. Yeah. First time I went bone fishing, the guy took me and said, now you've got a bone fish are a lot different. You really have to watch for them. And sometimes, you know, you have a hard time seeing them. I said, like those seven right over there? Yeah. He didn't even know they were over there. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> didn't do even the same see thing them. with trout. Of course, I can do exactly the same thing with trout. Right. Sure, if you know how to see fish in water, you know how to see fish in water. If you don't, you don't. So you can easily overlap skills from trout fishing into saltwater. Yes, there are certain, there are, you got to be able to cast a little differently in saltwater. Not not differently in the sense of using a different stroke, but you have to understand you got more wind, so you're going to double haul more than you would in trout fishing. Mm-hmm. You're using a little heavier rod, probably an eight rather than the six or fives that you'd use in trout fishing. Uh, yes, you're probably going to use a strip strike rather than a tip set strike, and it does, but that's not much difference. No. You can learn how to do that in a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. So the overlap that we have between the different kinds of fishing 
is not nearly as much as people would like to make it out to be. Yeah, I'll give you that for sure. You have so much more energy than I ever could have possibly thought you were going to have. <laughs> so I get it now. I get that you say you're super busy. You don't have much time. Mm-hmm. What's on the schedule? What's What's next for you? Well, you know, I'm going to continue doing the book series that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I'm also going back and I'm going to re-edit all of the videos that we did. Oh, okay. I've had a lot of requests for people. Well, I, you know, I get letters and emails all the time. I had a copy of that DVD, that video you did on, on the Bow River, and they're going to come out with DVD. So I finally said, hey, I can do all the editing. I've done all the editing myself for years anyway. And so I'll just edit the things, and I'll, I'll, I have my own DVD producing machine, so I can just produce DVDs myself. Wow. Yeah. How interesting. Now, the DVD that, you gave me today, huh? what is that one? That's, on, that's called the Perfect Cast One. That's to sort of coordinate with the book that I'm doing, but also... As I've done casting demonstrations at these shows over the years, people always say, do you have a DVD on this? And I always say, well, not yet. So now I tell them, yet's come. I have it at long last. And people can find these where? Uh, It's available online, and it's available in some of the fly shops. Do you have a website? And I will, yes, my website's just my name, GaryBorger.com. So you can go online, and you can find that easily enough. And I'm always putting up stuff on shows. I'm putting up stuff on... Uh, technique. I'm putting up stuff. If I go someplace, I put up stuff on. Um, somebody will, will, will write me a letter and say, hey, I caught this fish and I did X, Y, Z. And we'll put that up on the blog to help people understand. I'm not the only guy that can catch fish. A lot of guys, a lot of other people catch fish too. You know? Right, right. Right? Am I missing anything about your career or your timeline that you think is is significant? I mean, it's all significant, but it, to this... Well, I, I think, you know, I was very fortunate to be the the... Midwest director of the Fenwick Fly Fishing Schools, mm-hmm. as young as I was, mm-hmm. because that immediately opened up opportunities that I never would have had, had I not been that person. So here I am, the director of the Fenwick Fly Fishing Schools, and we have people coming into the schools who own sports shops. People started asking me to come and do speaking at, at events like this, or at a TU group, or at a federation meeting, and that kind of stuff. And I had some friends around in the industry in those days that helped promote me, not from the standpoint of saying, oh, here's Gary, but from the standpoint of, of setting up things, venues where we could go and participate in them. Right. Uh, one of those friends was Howard West, who worked at 3M. Okay. Uh, it was right after 3M had bought Scientific Anglers. Mm-hmm. And the guy that was the head of that division was Lou Jewett. And Lou was there for about, well, he was there for a few years, and finally he, he also got cancer and died, unfortunately. But oh. Howard was his underling, and Howard and I were friends for a long time. And when you start looking back at all this stuff from from my standpoint now, looking back, you know, we just did it. We never thought about we're doing history. No. But gosh, one of our buddies was Andy Miner, and Andy Miner is the guy who came up with genetic hackle. And we were tying with Andy Miner hackle before anybody even knew about Andy Miner hackle. And and he just lived there in Minneapolis, and and he was he'd bring hides over, and Howard and I would get these things and sort through them and pick out the best hackle, and that was crazy. We, I mean, we didn't know that we were, you know, that it was going to be something so wild and crazy, but it turned out to be. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're doing that kind of stuff, sometimes you don't realize it, but you can look back on it and see how all these threads come together. Really very interesting. Can't you take all these stories and put them into a book? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Probably someday I should do that. You really In should fact, do that. In fact, doing, I'm doing a book. The last book is called The River of a Thousand Tongues. And so it's the river that's speaking to me with all these different tongues oh, cool. of my life. That's going to be the last book in the series. So it's going to be a and little I, personal. It's going to be very personal. Hmm. So, you're going so to it's going to be, book. the book is going to be on that. It's going to be on stories of, of 
fishing that I've done in my life and places that we've gone and things that we've done and interesting things that we've seen and maybe some funny stuff too. Yeah. Because <laughs> funny things do happen fishing. I hope That's you do. Sure. I hope you put all the personality into your book. I, I will be one of the first people yeah. reading it. I don't know how I'm going to do all that. It's hard when you're writing to try to be like you're speaking. It's one of the hardest things because to do. Because how can yeah. you put enthusiasm into your writing? I mean, you can be enthusiastic in the writing of it. You can describe things in a good way. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to build descriptive work that's going to help somebody else cast or something, you know, you can do certain things that, but you can't have the voice inflections. Yeah, yeah, I, and I understand. Which is hard to do. Well, that's one of the so. reasons I wanted I wanted to be able to have you on the on the podcast too. Is you know when people well, it's people, been fun. It's always fun to do this kind of stuff. I love it when people listen to you speak. It's easy to read your work after and be able to hear your voice. You know, that's that, good. That comes through yeah, as well. That's good. Um, is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? You mean in regards to fishing? I mean, you can ask me whatever you'd like. Oh I don't know if I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> So when did you start? How old were you? When I started fly fishing or mm-hmm. fishing? Just fly fishing. Uh, I was an, a bait fisherman all through my teens. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically since I was three. But, you know, I started really fishing hard when I got my driver's license. Mm-hmm. And then my first fishing buddy was actually probably not that much younger than you are now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for my 18th birthday, he gave me my first fly rod. And it was oh, nice. an old eight-weight Shakespeare. Yeah. And that was that. There was no line and no reel, but I had some VHS tapes. And I saved up and bought myself a line and watched those tapes and sat on the edge of the bed going, you know, <laughs> all my hands must meet. Very went good. in the good front yard and, and yeah. that was that. Excellent. Yeah. And when did you get into two-handed casting? Not that long after, actually. I started double-hand casting when I was 21. So mm-hmm. I'm 33 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just turned, I turned 21 in April and I got my first rod in October right after that. My first double hand rod. So were you named Steve after the month you were born in then? I was, April 10th. Yep, okay. that is my right. birthday. Is there anything else before I let you get a bite to eat? Because it's uh, I don't know, 30. I can't think of anything else unless there's any kind of things you want to yak about. I mean, I think you've been exceptional. Thank you very much, April. It's been great fun talking with you. Thank you. Okay. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. It truly makes my day when I read them. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.